Good morning. My name is Janelle, and I'll be reading scripture for this morning from Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again? Father, this morning we come before your throne, not just as individuals, but as your church, the body of believers who your son laid down his life for. And Father, to the church, your son made great promises that he would build the church, that he would protect the church, that he would strengthen the church and purify us. So Father, this morning we come and we ask that through your word, you would keep those promises that Jesus made to us, even this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I've thought for a long time that I would really enjoy, that I I would do well growing up and living in the Old West. You know, late 19th century, old California, or Utah, or Arizona. Uh, I would love, I think, living in one of those rustic mining towns, or being even better on a cattle ranch and sleeping out by the campfire and under the stars and you know having bacon for every meal and no one telling me that it's not healthy for me and that'd be phenomenal. But we know that that's a very romanticized version of the Old West, right? Uh, those things were true, but that's not the full truth. Uh, it wasn't great for everyone, especially if you were a Native American or an African-American, or if you had a weak immune system and got sick often, because I probably wouldn't have made it past six years old when I had scarlet fever. You know, so not great for everyone, but we have this romanticized version of what it was like. And maybe we have a romanticized version of other things, like destinations. One of those is often Fiji. You know, Fiji, we think of paradise, Right? And I spent an extended time in Fiji, and my parents lived there for six, seven years. And it is beautiful, especially if you stay to the touristy areas and the beaches. Beautiful beaches, beautiful blue water. It's incredible. But if you move beyond that, you realize it's not a perfect paradise. Uh, The cities, well, it's third world. And they smell real bad and they're not real clean. And the people who are so friendly, you realize in ministering to them that there's this deep pattern of domestic abuse and there's racial tensions between the Indians and the native Fijians and there's corruption and there's all kinds of things. It's not paradise, but we have this romantic version of it that sounds so good. I think the same thing can be true of our vision of the early church. It can be a very romanticized, idealized version of it, based on passages like Acts 2, 42 to 47. 
It sounds perfect, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of that? And that is absolutely a true picture of the church, but it's not the full picture. It's a romanticized version in the sense that it's not complete. I, in truth, I find the story of the church, early church to be incredibly encouraging, especially when you move past the romanticized version, the incomplete version of it, to understand the full, true, big story of the early church. Uh, this morning, my, my sermon kind of is in three movements. First, how to understand the early church should inspire us, but also then, second, understanding how the full picture of the early church is sobering. But in its completeness, it's ultimately deeply encouraging. So to start, the story of the early church should inspire us. When I read Acts 2, 42 to 47, I come away feeling like I used to when I was a kid and walked out of a great movie that was inspiring, like The Karate Kid or something like that. You know, you walk out of that movie and you feel like you could take on the world and, you know, you're the best around. And I remember coming out of that movie and going home and, and setting up the living room to spar with my little brother. Now, we were both into karate at the time and just, we just seen this great movie and we wanted to reenact it and live it out. And then I kicked him through the living room window and uh, he still says I'm a good big brother. Uh, but we, we get this kind of inspiration from those stories, or even better, from real stories of, of real Christian heroes like Jim Elliott, or Eric Liddell, or, or the monks who kind of held Malta against the invading Ottoman Empire, and you just you feel inspired by it. Uh, the book of Acts is an inspiring biography of the early church that calls us to do better, to do more, to step out and venture in faith more, and to trust the Lord. The text that was read, Acts 2, 42 to 47, I think can be summarized with one key word, and the key word would be devotion. The early church was devoted. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we know was the gospel, the early church wanted to understand and, and grow in their knowledge of the gospel of Jesus. And the apostles' teaching certainly would have been incredibly Christocentric, focused on the teachings of Christ, how he instructed the believers to live in faith, to live in community, to live in union with him. Uh, but it would have been Christocentric in that it was about Jesus too, not just a Jesus' words, but his significance, who he was, the significance of his life and his death and his resurrection and his return. So the early church was devoted to these teachings and understanding how these teachings, teachings would impact how they lived in the here and the now of the first century. But the early church was devoted to worship also. Twice in that passage, you, you read the phrase, breaking of bread. And there's some debate about whether or not that meant just they 
they, they ate together, or does it have a more specific meaning uh, regarding the Eucharist and coming to the Lord's table and breaking bread there? And I think it's both and. If you want to know more about how central the Eucharist and the Lord's table and the breaking of bread was to the early church, I'd invite you to come to Stephen Morton's ACG. You missed it. We just talked about it in the, between the services about the early church and the Eucharist, but you can watch it on YouTube. But it was central to their understanding of, of worship. And they devoted themselves to prayer. They didn't just pray. They devoted themselves to prayer and to praising God. But even more striking than their devotion to worship in this passage is their devotion to each other, to, to community, to fellowship. The word fellowship there is the Greek word koinonia, which is one of Paul's favorite words. Luke, only, who's the author of Acts, only uses it, I think, twice. But it's an incredibly meaningful word because it doesn't mean just fellowship like we have a fellowship supper. It was a deep participation in one another's lives. It was a deep community, a, a, a sharing of life together in intimate and important ways. This wasn't just community based on natural affinity. That's easy community. That's the low-hanging fruit. But this community stretched across racial, racial divides, included Jew and Gentile and Samaritan. It was a deep community where if one brother had a need, the community rose up together to meet that need. If you saw your brother going hungry or without clothes, you stepped in to supply what was lacking. The passage says that they sold their possessions so that no one was without. If I had a field that was extra, I sold the field to supply the needs of the broader community. It cost me something to be a part of this community, but I was devoted to the koinonia. And they held all things in common. It's hard to overstate the importance of community in the early church. John Williamson Nevin, kind of my theological, one of my theological mentors, he's been dead 150 years and never met him, but uh, I really appreciate his theology and his insight. He, he almost, almost overstates the importance of community. He says the church was, for those early Christians, a fact deeper and wider and nearer to the proper life of Christianity than the Bible. Like, whoa. I mean, we're people of the book. But consider that the early Christians didn't have the book. They had portions, they had letters. And even if they had it in their home, they couldn't have read it. Most of them were illiterate. So the life of the church, the community was deeper and more important than even the Bible. They were devoted to one another. And in their communion together, they grew in a knowledge because they were devoted together to the apostles' teaching. And their devotion to each other and to Christ led, just gave them an 
an incredible, powerful witness to the world. It was an attractive community. Luke says that they held favor with all people. But they didn't just rely on their attractiveness to draw people in. They went out. They went out and boldly proclaimed the truths of Jesus. When you read Peter and Paul's sermons in the book of Acts, you cannot help but be struck by how bold they were. It's almost as if they were inviting persecution because they would say things like, you all, you hated the prophets and you killed them too. And you all crucified Jesus. They didn't shy away from speaking the hard truths. They were bold in their proclamation of truth. And it wasn't just Peter and Paul when they were dragged before pro-councils or, or councils. It was the lay people too. Not just the apostles, but men like Stephen and Philip. The longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts comes from Stephen, not one of the apostles. Stephen was a layman, a, a deacon in the church who proclaimed boldly Jesus Christ. And the first cross-cultural missionary in the Bible wasn't Paul, not even Peter. It was Philip who crossed over into Samarita, Samaria, the, the other people the hated others, and brought the gospel to them. And preached to the Ethiopian eunuch the gospel of Jesus. And because of this bold witness, because of the attractiveness of their community, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's incredible. I mean, that's what I want That's what the leadership of our church wants for this church, for the American church, for Christ's global church, uh, that we're devoted and that in our devotion we're attractive and people are coming to know the Lord more and more through our witness. Now if you're saying, yeah, that's what I want, but I don't see it, let me ask two questions. First, what are you doing to make it a reality? What are you doing to, to live out this vision of the early church and of their devotion? I do get glimpses of this through my 20 years in ministry, but it's almost never from people who were sitting on the sidelines It's from people who have stepped into community in deep and profound ways, who are willing to pay a price to be in community. It costs something. They're devoted. They give of themselves and they receive back. What are you doing to make this a reality? Are you devoted? That was my first question. It was a loaded one. The second question is, Have you read the rest of Acts? Uh, The rest of Acts is a little bit more sobering. We get this beautiful picture in Acts 2 of what the early church did in the communion 
of the, in the fellowship of the church. But so as not to have this overly romanticized version, read the whole story. Because the whole story of or the early Christian church should sober us. When I came out of seminary, I was incredibly enthralled with a theologian, you've probably heard his name, Jonathan Edwards, one of the stalwarts of the early American church. And I read all his, well not all, but a lot of his sermons, collections of his sermons. They're not all like sinners in the hands of an angry God. They're great sermons like Heaven is a World of Love and the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in the person of, it's a mouthful, but it's a great sermon. And I read his treatises, and they're incredible. And so I was, I love this man's theology. I want to know about his life. So I read a biography by Ian Murray, and it spoke of Edwards in just glowing terms. And I thought, he can't possibly be this great, can he? And the answer is no. (laughs) I read other biographies. And I realized this Ian Murray, the first biography I read, really wasn't a biography. It was a a hagiography. It was adoration of Edwards that was unhealthy and even. The full picture of Edwards is more sobering. He was a sinner. He owned slaves. He caused controversy that split churches in essence. That's sobering, even discouraging. When we tell ourselves sanitized versions of saints' lives or of the early church, we do ourselves a disservice because we need the whole story. And the whole story of the early church includes a lot of sin. There was hypocrisy Read in Acts chapter 5 the story of Ananias and Sapphira who said they sold the land and gave all the money they had to the church. They didn't have to sell the land. They didn't have to give it all. They could have held some back for themselves, but they were, you know, virtue signaling. Yeah, we gave it all. And they were lying. They were hypocrites and they were struck dead. There was bickering and complaining as Some in the Hellenistic wing of the church, the Greek-speaking portion of the church, were complaining that their widows weren't being looked after and accusing the Hebraic wing of the church of playing favorites. And so there was complaining and bitterness that really did follow kind of ethnic lines. The Hebraic versus the Hellenistic portion of the church. And that played out when Paul or when Peter re- refused to eat with the Gentile church. And Paul said to Peter, what are you doing? That's not what we're about. And there was this controversy. And there was scandal. Scandal in Ephesus. Scandal of the most grotesque kind in Corinth. Sexual immorality. And there was partisanship. Some saying, I'm of the, the party of Paul, and I'm of the party of Cephas, and I'm of the party of Apollos, and there was division. I'm saying all that to say if you want a perfect church, it has never existed. 
the church has always been filled with people like me, like you, who are sinners, who are hypocrites. I am a hypocrite because I stand up and I proclaim the perfection of Christ and the perfection of his way, and I call us to do it, and I don't live it perfectly. So by definition, I'm a hypocrite. And the church is filled with us. But it's still a good thing. Adam did something that Adam, my good, good, good friend, Adam, did something that I will never forgive him for. And he told me I needed to get on TikTok. (laughs) What a horrible thing that is. So I am now on TikTok. I have not yet posted. I don't think I ever will. But the algorithm of TikTok somehow has me trapped in this loop where the only things that pop up on my feed are deconstruction stories. You don't know what that means. It's people telling the story about how they used to be a Christian, how they used to be a part of the church, and they're done with it. They're done with it because they saw sin. They saw power being abused. There was hypocrites. Well, of course. There always has been. The church is not filled with perfect people, but sick people who know they need to get better. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, made a very impactful statement, at least to me. He said, he who loves his dream of community more than the actual Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the Christian community. In other words, we have this vision, this idealized, romanticized version of what the church and community and fellowship should be, and Because of that, we neglect and we miss the true community that is right there for us. Allow your dream, your dream of Christian community to implode. Allow that vision of community to be torn down by your own sin and the the weight of your sin and the weight of the sin of your brother and sister in Christ. Allow the fantasy to dissolve like mist. And then you can see the beauty of the community that you are in. It is not perfect, but it is beautiful. Sin has always been a part of the church's story. But that's not the end of the story. The story of the early Christian church is all the more encouraging to me because it includes sin. God wasn't using perfect people, but broken and frail and sinful people like me. We love underdog stories, right? Like like Rocky Balboa. Kind of not a very skilled fighter, not a bright guy. And I know it's fiction, but it's still great. Or real underdog stories like the 1980 U.S. hockey team who takes on a far superior Russian team and somehow wins. There is no better underdog story than the church's story. Will Durant in the influential series of books, The History of Civilization, 
said, this is a long quote, but it is so good. Listen to this. There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned and oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has ever known. Caesar and Christ met in the arena, and Christ has won. Christ has won. God used flawed, sinful people in an institution that doesn't make sense by worldly standards, the church, to change the world then, and he's still doing it now. Those saints that we read about who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, and to each other, those men, those women, they're our spiritual great-grandparents. And there's an unbroken chain of people locking arms saying, we are the church. We get to stand in that stream, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and say, yes, imperfectly, we are the church. The baton has been handed off from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and now to us who were called to remain faithful, steadfastly devoted to the apostles' teaching, to worship, and to each other as the body of Christ. And the promise is that the gates of hell will not prevail. Hell has done its best to try and crush the church with persecution and oppression, or seduce the church through temptation and cultural relevance. But the gates of hell, no matter what it throws at the church, will not prevail. I find the full story, the full story of the early church to be so encouraging, more than a sanitized version of it. Because there we see there was flawed people redeemed by Christ to be his church, united as one body. They became and remain an unstoppable force. Not because of their intellect, not because of their heart, but because of Christ's promise and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We stand in that stream and have the responsibility to continue to be what the early church was. Devoted. Devoted. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word and how it encourages us. How it calls us to be more. Not in our own power, not in our own strength but in the strength that only you can provide through your spirit. The church on its own is feeble and weak and will not survive. 
But should you tarry another 2,000 years, the institutions of this world that seem so formidable and so permanent, they will long have since faded. But your church will remain. And your word, your promises to the church will remain. We pray that you would find us faithful. In Jesus' precious name, amen.